Smartcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak with all kinds of founders and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. Today is round two with Jackie Fast, who is the managing partner of Sandbox Studios, an LA-based seed fund exclusively investing in talent-led startups. The VC has already made a number of investments. However, Jackie's probably best known for founding Slingshot, a London-based agency serving some of the world's most high-profile clients, including the Rolling Stones, Shell, Formula One, Red Bull, Sir Richard Branson himself, and more. In this one, we discuss Jackie's experience raising her first fund, the impact of the FTX meltdown, why VCs get it wrong when it comes to investing in talent-led startups, the magic of Ryan Reynolds, yes, he's magical, and much, much more. So with that, let's get right to the show. Here's round two with Jackie Fast. Let's give listeners some background. So for those folks that didn't hear your story on round one of this podcast, just give some background on the genesis of Sandbox. For sure. So I founded a company called Slingshot Sponsorship when I was much younger. Um, and the whole ethos was we leveraged IP for brands. So brands like Red Bull, Hyundai, Diageo, Coca-Cola, PepsiCo. And um, that agency is an extreme success. Uh, we had offices in Brazil, also Singapore, working with some of the biggest clients in the world, including Prince, the Rolling Stones, Elton John, Richard Branson, the Queen of England, Boris Johnson. I sold that business. I made a ton of money. I started angel investing, found out I was quite good at that, and then started this idea that there was a missing part of the puzzle for talent and brands. And right around 2017, people like Casamigos, Kylie Semantics were launching and selling for insane multiples. And a lot of this was, you know, their whole thesis. And I mean, and it's true, it's very difficult to acquire customers uh, because it's very busy and it's a cluttered environment and there's a duopoly with Facebook and Google ads and those continue to skyrocket. So talent is a really easy avenue for brands to get in front of consumer faces, but there's nobody in the investing world that has the marketing expertise required to really understand what makes those brands work. I think a lot of investors just kind of think, oh, well, if you have 200 million followers, it's going to be a million dollar company. And, you know, I've been working with talent and leveraging our key for 20 years. And I know that that is not the case. So there was quite a, you know, there was a real big white space 
prior prior to that, I had always thought that the finance arm and the marketing arm should always coexist, and it never does. Even in big brands, it doesn't. Um, and so, you know, I've always had this bugbear for years, even with Slingshot, that the financials and the commercialization of a business should be intertwined with marketing because marketing is what drives sales. And so it was kind of a natural evolution to move into fund management, be it I never really knew anybody who worked in venture previously. So it was very new to me. Initially, my idea around talent, the talent in space was an agency idea. Um, and it, over time, it just made more sense to be a venture fund where we give capital, but we provide agency services alongside that. So we have a fund that's based in LA. We exclusively invest in talent-led businesses. Those are businesses like Casamigos, Skims, Aviation Gin, anything where a celebrity talent is a direct leader of the strategy of the brand. And we make a relatively small investment. We're seed investors. And the big value add really is having me on the cap table. Did you find that it was difficult to, or that it is difficult to both fundraise and provide strategic direction or operational expertise to your portfolio? The real question is, did you find it difficult to fundraise and deploy capital at the same time? (laughs) A, yes. B, like it was not possible. So when we first did our first close in August, so we did a first close of a million dollars and the whole thing was you get money in, deploy the capital so you can see the types of deals that you get into. And, and you know, it gives investors a good idea and a good sense of what the fund will look like. So we took in that capital, deployed it relatively quickly, I'd say. I think we made four or five investments over the course of six months. And that was kind of good. All along, I was still fundraising. That was very, very difficult. But then we started gearing up for our second close, which we did in April. And so I was deploying capital and raising money at the same time. And then in April, we fell very short of what I thought we could have achieved considering we had some great companies that we had invested in. One of them had even 2X'd in that time. And then at that point, I was like, this is going to be impossible. I think we had raised... Four million at that point. And so for me to get 50 million, I'm like, I've never, I'm like, and also the window's closing, right? So you only have 18 months. So I know I have to raise 10 million in December and my track record was terrible. Like it was taking me six months to raise like a couple million dollars. And so I stopped deploying capital as of June of last year. I stopped taking meetings. I was just like, we need, you need to have money in order to do the thing. And by that point, our portfolio was amazing. And it still was funny to realize that it doesn't even make that much of a difference. I mean, it definitely made a difference, but like our portfolio was 2x by the time we did our final close. You write about it in the newsletter that on November 11th, FTX files for bankruptcy and then Sandbox Studios was due to close November 12th, the following day. So can you just talk about that sequence of events and how that impacted you guys? Yeah, I think what I found really frustrating is you would speak to other fund managers or other investors or, you know, anybody. They'd be like, oh, raising a first fund so hard. Oh, the market conditions. And I'm like, just 
They just say yes or just say no. Like, I don't need you to give me the macro environment. Like, we're raising a fund. You're either in or you're not in. I don't need to have this conversation. Like, and also I was having this conversation like 20 times a week. I knew all of this stuff was happening, but like, it didn't really matter, right? Like, we had to raise the money. Our window was closing. Um, and then FTX was like a real issue because it was so visible. We had in our LPA the word crypto. So we were able to invest in cryptocurrencies, even though I never would do that. But we, you know, our LPA was as wide as it could be. So crypto was in our LPA. That was a problem for a number of investors. And in our deck, I think I had stuff like esports and we had a web three company. So we had invested in Unlocked, which was a web three company. And it just really made existing. So between the April and that November blog, what I was doing is raising money, getting soft commits. And soft commit is effectively, as you know, somebody says, if they're going to do it, they don't necessarily sign the paperwork and we get them to sign the paperwork all in one go. Let's just say, I can't remember this for fact, but let's just say we had 20 investors soft committed at that point. One of them freaked out that we had crypto in the LPA and then basically made no requested that we take it out. And I said, no, because we have all these other investors. Another one needed to have a conversation about our strategy about crypto. Another one wanted to understand the difference between unblocked. Another one wanted to understand our future thought of Web3. So these are all people I had been speaking with for six months that now question and who I thought in my head were closed who are now questioning our investment thesis, which by the way, has nothing to do with the crypto. Like, you know, it's, it's not, it has nothing to do with crypto. And then we had three people who had committed and they just dropped out. We were due to close November 12th. We did not close because I lost. I mean, I look, I, at that point, it looked like I was going to lose eight of the 20 investors. Um, I ended up only losing one. I managed to claw, claw it back, uh, but it took a month, right? To like kind of fix that problem. I mean, was there any way to hedge against something like that? Or is that just the reality of the situation when you are raising a fund? Another way of making the statement is that, you know, focus on what you're doing, focus on your core thesis, uh, your core objective and ignore the macroeconomic conditions. Well, that's what I did. But I don't, do you know, there was another, there's another fund manager who I love and super respect and he's super, super helpful with the raising the wine fund. And he told me that they always look at the markets like every day to see if they're down or up and they would never call capital on a down day or like a series of down days. And I had never even thought about doing that. And that's something that I do now. Um, I, I bear that in mind because when people feel richer, they're more happy to part with capital, right? If you're losing, hundreds of thousands or millions a day, it makes you less wanting to part with your money. With the FTX thing, I think that was a real eye-opener for me because we weren't a crypto fund, right? So we had an issue like Casamigos goes bust shortly after George sells and he leaves. You know what I mean? There's There are things that could have been news that I think should and would have affected our fund in a lot more detail than it were related to our thesis. But it was interesting to see how, you know, the FTX thing affected investors, right? It had nothing to do with me, but I'm after investors. So you have to really think about that. I think when you're raising a fund and I had a real hard time in raising our fund last year because of the macroeconomic environment. But I would also argue it's really hard for me to say that it wouldn't be as hard. I mean, even the amount of time that I spent trying to like pacify existing investors about 
crypto, which we don't even invest in, is time away from raising capital. So it does come into play. You know, that piece of advice, so never call during a down day, it's a unique piece of advice. It's sort of tapping into the psychology of your potential investor. Is there anything that you learned about getting investors to say yes, besides this piece of advice that came as a surprise to you? Yeah, I really noticed FOMO as a thing. And so one of the things that I didn't do last year, and I wish I had, is, as I mentioned, we did our second close in April, and then we didn't do it, but then we just had a final close. And I noticed that the conversations I had really early on just like never really closed. And then all of a sudden, like all of the conversations we had in October and November all closed in December. And not all, obviously, but the percentage of them were higher than the ones that like I had a lot more conversations earlier in the year that didn't close. And I think if you give people too much time, they either find other things or get less interested. And that is something I was surprised at because as an investor myself, usually if there's something that I want to invest in, I want to invest in it, but also momentum plays into it. You know, these are still people with emotions and, you know, nobody wants to lose a deal. Nobody wants to miss out on an opportunity. And I never really played into that. And I would do that more and have a shorter raise window for the next fund. You also mentioned in your newsletter that if you aren't a tech fund, that you'll have a hard time finding investors that will understand what you're doing. Did you ever try and repivot your narrative to become a tech fund? So, you know, we invest in talent-led brands. Unfortunately, you know, I would love to be more techie, but unfortunately, celebrities tend to do equity deals with products that they are comfortable with. And most people, most celebrities especially, don't understand technology. But they'll understand if a shampoo smells good. And they'll understand if the lipstick makes you look really good for a date night. And so it's easier for them to say, oh, I'll do a couple posts for some equity for this alcohol brand that I think tastes amazing over the latest AI opportunity because they don't necessarily have advisors that can gear them in that way. Saying that, we want to have a very balanced portfolio. So we do have some technology companies within our portfolio. Uh, as mentioned, we have a Web3 company and we have a animation studio uh, with Jennifer Aniston and Serena Williams. And those are kind of digital assets, digital companies. I don't know how much of a percentage of our portfolio that will be. We've seen over 300 brands. I would say less than 10% are tech-focused. Okay. I just want to shift gears for one moment. So in the past 12 months, you say there's been a shift in celebrity brands. Interest is at its peak. Influence is also at its peak, but there are cracks that are starting to emerge. What do you mean? Where are there cracks? So a lot of brands off the back of the Casamigos and Kylie Cosmetics and Aviation Gym success have launched without getting the fundamentals right. So I kind of alluded to this before, but the whole reason that we launch is the people that are launching these brands really don't understand talent and the people that are investing in these brands don't understand talent predominantly. And so what has happened is there is an assumption that if you have 200 million followers, you will become a billion dollar business overnight. And that really isn't the case at all. And I mean, I could give you a million examples of why that isn't. A lot of investors, specifically I noticed in private equity, kind of decided to like throw in loads of money with a celebrity to launch the next hair care thing, the next shoe company, the next skincare, what have you. And the product is typically decent, 
but the execution of it has been really poor. And these companies have budgeted like it's going to be a $10 million company within the first year. And so they have spent an insane amount on production, studio costs, using the celebrity and some really sexy campaigns, brand marketing, a really like shit hot team. Then when they launch and they're getting, you know, less than six figures in revenue per month, everybody bails, which is the team because everybody's, you know, performance based or everybody gets fired and they run out of money so quickly because again, if you're thinking you're going to do 10 million in the first year, it's like a million and you're hitting like a 10th of the budget you thought you were going to. And this has happened across the board. This is not a unique situation. I've seen this with, I probably say 15 to 20% of the celebrity brands out there. And it's mismanagement of the budget because the projections are really, I, I mean, I don't even understand where they're kind of getting their projections from because the conversion rates are typically not like that. So that is what is happening. And that is what has happened over the last couple of years. And it's a great opportunity for us if you want to, or it's a great opportunity for somebody who wants to pick up distressed property and kind of resurrect it because sometimes the partnership is still really good and the product's good. They've just mismanaged the budget. Are there categories sort of beyond food and bev, cosmetics, beauty, skincare, these obvious categories that you think are going to be hot in 23 and beyond? We've been looking at a lot around health and wellness and, and like mental health, wellness, supplements. There's a lot about, you know, healthier living, how to live longer. I think that very much is the zeitgeist at the moment. And I think celebrities, it's a really easy thing to get on board with. I would like to see more around sustainability. I think there are a number of celebrity-led brands that are out there with celebrities, but I don't really feel like there's a push in that way as much as you would see beauty. So celebrities and beauty products really are, I mean, exploding is a like for lack of a better word. I kind of expect that category to be full of brands with celebrities in like the next year or two. Like I can't imagine Sephora will launch another brand that doesn't have a face attached to them. But there are other categories like sustainability that are not there, which I think should be. What are the risks to celebrities themselves when they think about attaching their name to a brand? So I think the risk is minimal. But saying that, you know, the upside of being a celebrity who has a great brand is huge. So it's more of an opportunity risk, I think, than an actual like real brand risk to the celebrity. Ryan Reynolds is a really great example here. You know, he wasn't, I mean, I guess he is an A-lister, but his, his stardom has really exploded because he's so good at being a celebrity founder. You know, it's his success with his picks with Aviation Gin and Mint and Welcome to Rexa that is what is really amplifying his celebrity status. And because of that, he now can kind of like do anything and he's more sought after for roles. He's more sought after for like speaking engagements. He's more sought after for deals and partnerships and deal flow. And I think that is what celebrities are not understanding yet. If Ryan Reynolds has success in the food and beverage space and decides he wants to diversify even further, what do you think goes into his selection process in terms of what he's going to do next? For example, like if Brad Pitt launches this $2,000 cashmere sweater line, you know, what's stopping Ryan Reynolds from doing the same as a diversification strategy? 
Nothing is stopping them. I think Ryan, Ryan is savvier and he is also, I think, you know, when he had Aviation Gin, much of his success with Aviation Gin, like Ryan is really smart. He's creative. He's like really good stories. So this is one of the issues that I've got with celebrity brands and their founders. Their founders typically are like, let's push their audience. Let's say, I love this drink. Put it on social. That's the end of it. What Ryan did and what most celebrities still don't emulate, which I don't understand, is Ryan took his specific skill set, which is acting, storytelling, comedy, comedy writing specifically, and used that skill set within the brand to leverage the brand. Most celebrities don't do that. And, you know, even if you look at the musicians, you don't see them writing the background music or like the mnemonics or anything for the brands that they get behind, which is, in my opinion, ridiculous. And so what Ryan does really well is he understands what he adds value to and how. And when he looks at the brands that he gets involved with, like you'll notice they're all consumer-based. And they're all consumer-based because he is good at reaching a consumer and growing and for growth of customer acquisition. And so you're not going to see him do like a rocket ship or a B2B SaaS company because it doesn't play into what he can add value to. Do you think he makes these decisions himself? Do you think he has advisors? Do most celebrities have investment and or brand launch advisors of some kind? How are these decisions getting made? So for, I, I like know these things rather than think these things. Ryan like makes these decisions or at least has a gauge for the decisions himself. He obviously like has a circle of friends that he speaks to and some advisors, but he is like a pretty smart cookie. He does a lot of this stuff himself. Jay-Z is another great example. Jay-Z has advisors, but he does a lot of this stuff himself. It's his decision, his idea, and that is what he does. Other celebrities, rightly or wrongly, I think a lot of it's gut-based. And I think not everybody is a natural-born entrepreneur. And I think that's also where this comes into play in a negative way. You know, everybody wants to be the next Jay-Z. And the truth of the matter is, you know, you have to work to do this stuff. And I think a lot of celebrities don't realize that these people are working. You know, I think they think that um, you do a couple posts and the thing goes viral. But the Kardashians, great example of, of somebody who like puts in the hours. Jay-Z, he puts in the hours. And that's why these things are successful. Well, to me, this goes back to what you were saying earlier about investors not understanding that there's really no true correlation between follower count and success of a celebrity brand launch. Instead, what you're talking about here is a direct correlation between entrepreneurial savvy or entrepreneurial know-how and brand success. Yeah. And you don't have to be entrepreneurial if you have entrepreneurial people around you and who tell you what to do. So, I mean, one of the whole ethos of Sandbox Studios is that I have been doing this for 20 plus years and not all celebrities are created equal. But if you have somebody like me on your team, there's got to be some kind of trust that I know what I'm doing. I can tell the celebrity to do certain things and not do other things. And I get them to do the stuff that works. What's currently happening is founders are telling the celebrities to do all of the things. Some of the stuff works and some of the stuff doesn't work. And they don't really know what is working and what doesn't work. And what happens is you lose momentum and interest by the celebrity if they're doing like 20 posts a week, a month, and like three of them kind of work and the rest of them don't. They're like, well, I don't want to do this anymore. 
I just want to spend the last 10 minutes or so talking about the consumer trends that you highlight in your newsletter. So let's get into some of these. So 78% of younger consumers say they prefer celebrity-founded brands. So beyond you know trust and fandom, are there other underlying factors that are worth talking about here? I think it's also visibility. So we're roughly the same age, I think, Adam. And when I grew up, I was it's actually very funny. We were just in Vegas with my son. And in the hotel room, they didn't have a streaming thing. It was live TV. And my son is two and a half. And he did not understand advertisements. And every time the ad came on, he thought his show was over. And he like freaked out. I'm like, it's an ad. He's like, take off the ad. I don't want the ad. I'm like, I can't. I can't do anything. Like, this is live TV. And he, like, had a meltdown. Now, that's a totally different issue that we've got to deal with. But, you know, younger people aren't used to not getting content through celebrities because that is the content that they consume. Whereas we used to watch, you know, Saved by the Bell and see advertisements by Cheetos. The content media that they are consuming is very, very different. And it is really highly celebrity focus because that's what is interesting and that's what they follow on social media. So it's not surprising that 78% prefer brands that are founded by celebrities because it's what they're used to. Speaking of babies and young kids, you say also consumers are more likely to purchase a celebrity brand in the apparel or beauty space as opposed to, let's say, baby food or baby products or furniture or, or something to that effect. I'm just thinking about The Honest Company and the success of Jessica Alba, but this stat says something else. So what else is going on here? So I think there are a couple things at play. I think the demographic for purchasing a Hello Bella product um, or an Honest Company product is an older demographic, whereas you know Gen Z are purchasing skincare. I think a younger demographic is more used to buying celebrity products than an older demographic. Saying that, the early success of Honest Company, Goop, Aviation Gym, all of those. I mean, there are some really early on exits in the space of celebrity brands. And the fundamentals of those companies are very different to the fundamentals of the companies that are launching now. Jessica Alba is a really great example. She, you know, she's not an A-list celebrity. And she really, really was passionate about having clean baby products. And you know, you don't read this in the papers, but she tried for years to get into Target. She was asking everybody she knew at dinners and everything and be like, do you know somebody who can get me in front of Target, get me in front of a buyer? And back in those days, it was really weird to have like, what does this celebrity know about launching a skincare line? Truthfully, I think what stunted her growth at the beginning was her being a celebrity, which is really very different to the way that it works now, especially with retailers. I'm just going to rhyme off some of these other stats for folks. So 29% of consumers are more likely to buy the product if they like the celebrity. There is preference for celebrity-founded brands that skew urban and higher income. 54% of liquor store owners say they intentionally stock celebrity brands. Engagement on Instagram is four and a half times higher with celebrity-founded beauty and personal care brands compared to those without celebrity founders. That's interesting. Where did you get this piece of data, by the way, four and a half times higher with celebrity founded brands? Well, that is all in a report that Coefficient Capital put out recently. So if you are on the newsletter, I think if you link to the top, it's got the full report of all of that. And that's where all of those, those are just some stats that I pulled out that are pretty interesting. 
But again, with the beauty stuff, I think makeup tutorials are really where this is driving it. And the early rise of influencers and social media influencers and TikTok stars was really around beauty. And it really was makeup tutorials because apart from going online, I mean, the person that taught me how to do my makeup was my mom. I mean, I can tell you, she's no Hailey Bieber, right? And so when all of a sudden social media and digital technology came into the forefront, you got people that look like you, that talk like you, showing you how to do really amazing makeup tutorials. And so that is one of the first kind of like rise of like the influencer. And so that is understandable that that's the kind of content that resonates right now with celebrity brands, because do you want to see somebody who looks like you and talks like you? doing eyeliner or do you want to see JLo doing her eyeliner? You know, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about this piece of info before we wrap up. So the most random place you guys secured an investment, Jackie was on a golf cart. What other meeting settings where you got a yes are story worthy? Well, I want to confirm that that was not a meeting setting. That was me getting into a golf cart to get to the front of an event that I was going to and we just struck up a conversation. One of the things that we found really, really successful is that we, and it was really hit or miss actually, but we hosted Sandbox Studios dinners with our existing LPs. So our LPs have been so incredibly supportive of the fund. And what would typically happen is they would invite, or they would host a Sandbox Studios dinner. We would fly down. They would invite their close network of friends and colleagues. And we would invite some interesting investors in the local area as well, put on a dinner, do the pitch, feed them some food, give them some wine. Um, and that tended to work the best I would say that the majority of my pitches, maybe 80% of them were done over Zoom, which is great when you're trying to get through a lot, but maybe not great in terms of like conversion metrics. But, you know, our LA investors, I think probably only make up 15% of our fund. At one point, I think by the second close, 84% of our investors were outside America. And so Zoom is kind of like the only way to really do it. I mean, I also heard from Heather Hornet, who's got the human VC that she's got one of her biggest investors she met in an elevator. I think the name of the game is you should be really pitching your fund to everybody you meet, which I kind of did do to an extent. I mean, I spent every waking moment trying to raise capital. But yeah, the, the golf cart thing was, was the weirdest place. Also, you said the most common response after first pitch with prospective investors was a quote, where do you get all this energy from? End quote. You know what it is? I am very passionate about the work that I do. And I was always like this with like Slingshot. And so I get really excited about talking about what I'm doing and why it's going to work. And that I guess that's kind of a bit of my secret sauce or my superpower. And I literally could probably do like 10 pitches and be as excited about it on like pitch 10 as I was on pitch one in a day. And that's just, you know, I think you kind of also need that stamina to kind of power through it. So you kind of have to, you know, you have to love what you do. And I do. Well, Jackie, congrats on closing your first fund. When is fund two happening, by the way? Probably next year, towards the end of next year. We'll see how we get on. Well, you can take all your learnings from this experience into fund two. I'm sure you have a much easier ride. Let's hope so. Uh, Sandbox Studios dot ventures for more on what you guys do. Where else can people find out about Sandbox? Where do you hang out, Jackie, on social? 
I'm on social at Jackie Fast on Twitter at Jackie Fast. I'm pretty much everywhere on social at Jackie Fast. Um, we, we don't have a social page for Sandbox yet. I think the website's probably the best place to find more info or, you know, feel free to reach out. Well, Jackie, thanks again for coming on. Thanks for having me, Adam. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. Entrepreneurs Exposed is brought to you by Scriberbase. Build your subscription business and thrive. More at Scriberbase.com. If you like what you heard today, don't forget to download and subscribe wherever you get your audio. It helps our audience find us. You can also visit us at glow.fm forward slash E2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An Electric Cast production. See you there.